Hi, everyone. I'm Bob Coughlin, President and CEO of MassBio, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to the State of Possible podcast. The COVID-19 pandemic has put a spotlight on health inequities in our country as minority populations are getting sick and dying at a disproportionate rate. Healthcare and life science industries and organizations like MassBio are increasingly making health equity a strategic priority to ensure that everyone has equal access and opportunity to quality healthcare. But it's clear, there's much work to be done. Before we begin our discussion, I would like to acknowledge the support of our sponsors, Thermo Fisher Scientific, Morgan Stanley, and Marsh McLennan Agency. And now, a word from Thermo Fisher Scientific. COVID-19 has spread across the globe with devastating effect. Thermo Fisher Scientific's scale and depth of capabilities have never been more vital. And our mission to enable our customers to make the world healthier, cleaner, and safer has never been more important. At Thermo Fisher Scientific, we remain at the forefront of the fight against coronavirus and are partnering with biopharma customers who are working to develop COVID-19 treatments and vaccines. And that's just the start. Learn more at fisherside.com. That's fishersci.com. Welcome back to the State of Possible podcast. Today, I'm joined by Kate Walsh, President and CEO of Boston Medical Center, and Sherfi Jindo, Executive Vice President and Head of Global Product Strategy and Commercialization with Biogen, as we explore the issues of health inequities and possible solutions. Welcome, Kate and Sherfi. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. Pleasure to participate. You know, we want to discuss how the biopharma industry and providers can work together to address health inequities. You know, let's start with the root of health inequities in our country from a culture of mistrust originating from the Tuskegee syphilis experiment that began in the 1930s to a lack of diversity within healthcare institutions and a lack of access to quality care for minority populations. How can we work together to rebuild this trust? And, and, you know, we know this is no easy task, but we need to do it. And, you know, where should we start? Cherfi, what are your thoughts on this topic? Well, Bob, this is a longstanding issue in our country. The legacy of Tuskegee syphilis experiment. There are other examples, uh, birth control experiments in Puerto Rico and many, many other examples. Yes, there is a trust deficit. Uh, with respect to uh, minority populations in the U.S. and their interactions with the healthcare provider community. I think if there's no magic bullet. The way we're trying to address this uh, advising is, first and foremost, to educate and acknowledge the problem and educate. Make sure that we have diverse populations, diverse representation within our own staff, and importantly, work together with providers with like Kate and BMC and, uh, and the community to try to uh, promote change and make change. I would echo that and just say that for me personally and for the team here at Boston Medical Center, COVID-19 was definitely a wake-up call. Before COVID, 50% of our discharges were patients of color. And with COVID-19, that number rose to 80%. Typically, we would 10% of the patients in our beds would be homeless or, struggle, or housing insecure. With COVID, that was 17 or almost 18%. So we saw firsthand, even at a place that prides itself, on providing exceptional care without exception. It has a really diverse staff um, and patient base that this pandemic disproportionately affected the patients that we serve. So it's caused us as an organization 
It's given us a little shot of humility and caused us to step back to say, how do we address these root causes? And I think where we fall down and where where I think biopharma and all of us could do better is involving patients sooner in the process. I think that we make assumptions about why people do what they do. And I think that we need to be a lot more thoughtful about how we can engage people early on in study design, even in some of the basics, what we you know, we're allowed to reimburse for certain things. What what are they? Is it childcare? Is it a bus pass? Is it, um, you know, is it Wi-Fi? And how do we how do we think about some of the very specific needs that our patients? What what are their concerns? Because everybody wants to get healthy and stay well. And how do we develop clinical trials that ensure, to the extent possible, that that happens? And the last thing that I would add is, organizations that disproportionately serve low-income patients tend to be resource-constrained. So it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg problem. You know, what we saw, um, and Bob, you and I had, had some serious conversations about this in the early days of, of COVID, was that those companies that had therapeutic agents that c- could potentially be useful against this horrible illness went to the people they knew. And so they went to yeah. the major medical centers that may or may not have had the diverse representation of patients that we had at Boston Medical Center. So that kind of self-reinforcing prophecy is something. Now, BMC has to be a better partner for Biopharma, and that's one of the things I'd like to hear about from Churfy. Yeah, well, that's a great point. And Kate, you, we had several conversations early on uh, when COVID came upon us and this horrible, horrible pandemic came about. Let's have that discussion right now. Let's talk a little bit. And we have industry on the call. We have providers on the call. What is it that we can do so that when and if it happens again, how can we be better prepared so that the providers that care for underserved communities, how, how can we do a better job and be ready for it? Yeah, Bobby, if I can chime in, you might be good to kind of uh, remind us so some of the facts. They're well known, but I think it's worth repeating. Sure. Yeah, tragedy of COVID, three and a half times more likely to die of COVID if you're black and African-American. You're two and a half times more likely to die if you're Latinx uh, in the United States and similar numbers for uh, Native Americans and so forth. So, But the positive, the positive is that it has highlighted some underlying issues with respect to access. Minority populations tend to be overexposed uh, to risk based on uh, socioeconomics, based on uh, where they live. They tend to live in high-density areas. They are the frontline people for the most part. They tend to have underlying health conditions, diabetes, obesity, and, and, and heart disease, and so forth. And importantly, also environment. And this is one of the uh, new insights that we are getting from a scientific standpoint, the connection between pollution, air pollution in particular, and health, with respect to brain health in particular. And this is an area where Biogen is very, very uh, focused on. We are in neuroscience, and uh, we announced recently a major, major effort $250 million investment over the next the next 10 years to try and really, really understand the root cause of this and partner with providers, with academics like MIT and Harvard to better establish the connectivity and come up with strategies that will help alleviate the pain and suffering in these communities in particular. You know, something positive is coming out of COVID, if I could say that. We have a lot of work to do. You know, let's grab this opportunity to make a real change happen. You know, Cherifi, I, I couldn't agree with you more that there are some real positive things that have come out of what we've learned from COVID. And I, I think the fact that we're having this conversation today is a perfect example of that. And Kate, I think you'd agree the, the level of communication between our industry and the healthcare providers. I, you know, I've been involved in one shape or form with this industry for close to 20 years now. 
And I have never seen that willingness to collaborate and communicate accelerated uh, the way it has in, in the past, you know, eight or so months. What are some of the things you think we can do better, Kate? I think we should find ways to reinforce the collaboration you've talked about. You know, whether it was somebody like Thermo Fisher making sure that we had the supplies we need to, needed to test patients or colleagues at Biogen making sure the people had what they needed. It was enormously gratifying to see how all aspects of our industry came together to support patients and caregivers during the worst of the peak. And I think also our, our community kind of came out of COVID and into Black Lives Matter, which I think drove home yeah. a, a commitment to doing better good. And I think we all share that commitment, but we, what we can't do is let it dissipate. So making sure that we have difficult, time-consuming conversations with patients and with providers. Like I know that it's probably challenging to open a clinical trial for a new agent. I know how challenging it is to make a new medicine or to make a new therapeutic or to make a vaccine. We have a vaccine trial open for COVID and we almost blew it because we weren't accruing fast enough because we didn't resource it well enough. And I think that our commitment as an organization that disproportionately cares for low-income people of color, that's not an excuse. We have to be that much better than everybody else to make sure that our patients are represented and get access to the innovation that, that we need. And frankly, they help pay for as taxpayers. You know, it's almost like we say, okay, we took care of them, phew. But that's not enough. We know that these disparities will continue to grow if we can't actually cure disease. And that's what Biopharma and MassBio are all about. So we have to get better and we need to find willing partners on the life science side who will take a risk and work with us. You know, Kate, that leads me right into the next topic that I think we should talk about, which is access to clinical trials. It's a huge component of health inequity in our industries really can take the lead on addressing this problem. You know, a clinical trial should be representative of the patient population. But we know this isn't always the case because there's huge barriers to access these clinical trials in order to diversify the participants. And these trials should look like the patient population we serve. We know that. Let's talk a little bit of some of the barriers to diversifying clinical trials and how we you know, build the right incentives for biopharma companies to support a more coordinated effort to enroll more diverse participants. Cherfi, could you start with this? No, absolutely, uh, absolutely, Rob. I think we all agree that it's really, really important to have diverse representation in clinical trials. But this is really hard to do, as we all know. You know, there is a uh, tension, if you want, between the urgency with which you develop your programs and the need to have the diversity. Because the more diversity you have, the more work you need to put into to get your programs to the finish line. We're finding out through a deep dive analysis that we've been conducting over the, uh, over the past couple of years with Biogen is that it takes having diverse frontline people, starting with our own company. We need to have people within the clinical research organization. We need to have people in the frontline interacting with the hospitals and the clinicians uh, like Kate who can relate to the reality on the ground. Uh, so unless you have diversity at that level, folks tend to hire from their existing networks. What we're right. doing now at Biogen is we're actually putting metrics in place. We're making sure that our clinical research organization is diverse, first and foremost, and that the partners we work with, the TROs and others, that they also have diverse representation so that we have folks who come from those communities who understand how to recruit from those communities, how to build trust with those communities, and how to make sure that those communities are motivated to rapidly enroll in clinical trials without delay. We're seeing that with COVID today. Can you imagine a COVID trial that doesn't have diversity? It wouldn't make any sense. 
So it's really hard. There is a tension between timeline, right, and the need to have proper representation. So I think the way to go at it is understanding the problem, do the hard work, and aligning the incentives. So right now we have metrics. The program that I would call out is lupus. We have a very exciting lupus program. Now, lupus happens to be a disease that is predominantly or disproportionately impacting African-American and uh, Latinx citizens. We're using lupus as a case study to motivate our teams and say, now, let's now learn from this. Let's go rapidly uh, into areas that we didn't used to go to. It's not all about uh, the Massachusetts area. We need to go into uh, the South. We need to go into areas where you have those populations and you need to build trust so that you can enroll those communities into trials. So it's a long, there's no silver bullet. It takes hard work. It takes having people who get it. And it takes having aligned incentives to get the job done. If I could add in a shameless plug for organizations like Boston Medical Center that have long histories and um, traditions of disproportionately serving people of color and who need to be in trials, we have built trust with our patients on an individual basis that will help overcome some of the historic and very appropriate mistrust that people feel about the system. So I think the translation of the individual relationships that we see with our patients could be invaluable to biopharma. And it's not just Boston Medical Center. It could be, you know, Meharry Medical School in Tennessee. I think there's lots Mm -hmm. of places that pharma needs to go and not round up the usual suspects when they want to do a trial. Yeah, that's so important. And Kate, you mentioned trust and trust is key to get patients to enroll in this. And, And, you know, as a as a CF dad and a patient advocate, I know this. My, my son was in six clinical trials before he was even six years old, and we've lived it. And one of the things that I've seen, and it leads to a question about how can providers and biopharma companies work together to make these trials more accessible, meaning like how do you overcome hurdles like paying for parking and lodging and food? And how does a parent take time off from work so that you can actually participate in this trial. It's so much more difficult than anyone would ever understand. And if our goal is to be inclusive and get more people involved, there are so many challenges. I'd ask, is there any role that providers like Boston Medical Center can play in working with our member companies? Because there's a lot of rules, right? Companies, there's there's firewalls there. But yet people are limited as to how much that they can participate. So be curious to hear some of your thoughts. Yeah. So, Bob, I, I think that's really, really important. And one of my notes says to me, you cannot pretend that this is simply, quote, teach them and they'll choose a wiser path. It's yeah. really complex, as you said, because yeah. it's not only trust. You know, you have a loved one. You know, they may not feel as well as they did before they went on the trial. There's a lot of fear within loved one who is ill. And then there's all of the challenges that you describe that if somebody, if a person is low income or feels discriminated, you know, against in the organization, you know, stopped by the public safety person as they come in the organization, all of the microaggressions that people of color live with every day in this country, you know, layer that on top of the kinds of everything else you just talked about. Why would you do a trial? Dr. Thea James, who's our VP of mission, who also works in our emergency room, will say, um, you know, the resident will present a case for her and say, well, this patient isn't taking his medicine. And she'll say, why? He'll say, well, I don't know. He's just not taking his medicine and his blood pressure's high. And she'll say, why? And, you know, go back and find out why the patient isn't doing this. Yeah. And I think the same thing needs to happen in clinical trials. Why are African-American patients with Alzheimer's, why are families not enrolling their loved ones 
in these trials. Is Alzheimer's seen as a white disease? Do people understand the, the biology? Do they understand the risks to their, to their families? Do they understand the clinical questions that are being written? Why? I bet it's much more fundamental than I don't want to park. I, I can't take a day off from work. I think we're getting at the why is going to be really important. And that's going to take time. Time is money to people who have worked sometimes for decades to get a compound into a medicine that yeah. can go into humans. I completely agree with Kate, you know, that this is much more fundamental than just getting, you know, taking care of the economics. Although the economics are important, Bob, to your, mm-hmm. to your earlier point, so we gotta, we got to take care of those. What we're hearing uh, from a Belgian perspective, what we're hearing more and more from the community is you need to stay the course. You can't be, you know, we're all motivated. Everybody's motivated. COVID has been a huge trigger. Uh, we all get it. I think the worst thing that will happen is that a year or two from now, all this goodwill that has been created by this COVID awareness then just dies off. And then we stop talking to the community. We stop engaging. Then you actually destroy trust even more. Whatever we do now, we need to stick with it because this is hard work. It's going to take time. It takes a long time to build trust. So let me give you a couple of examples of how we're thinking about this. You have the short term, right? Obviously, we're still in the respond phase right now. We're responding to the crisis. We're trying to recover from the crisis. I think uh, going forward, we need to reimagine what good looks like. And we've started to have, you know, real, real strategic conversations with Biogen around a few areas. You know, one is the environment. We talked about it earlier. So we are in it for the long term. We want to make a difference in, you know, the carbon footprint, which disproportionately impacts communities of color, as we all know. The second thing that we are prioritizing is talent development. So we have a partnership with MGH to train cohort of fellows, primarily black, African-American, Latinx, and immigrant students, to give them an encouragement to pursue neuroscience. We realize that there is a huge gap in representation in neurology uh, in this country. So if we can motivate these smart, young students to pursue neurology, then they will be the future clinical scientists yeah. that we need going forward. You know, uh, Kate mentioned Alzheimer's. Well, I've had those conversations with, with family members. I just know that these are such difficult and sometimes culturally sensitive topics that it's very helpful if you can talk to somebody who comes from your community mm. about these issues. So having physicians, having nurses, having healthcare professionals who come from those communities is going to be critically important. And so we are trying to encourage young people to pursue these fields. And we're also working at a lower level, high school level, to encourage STEM education. So this is something that we, we have reaffirmed in terms of our commitment. And, and finally, the other angle we're taking is economic empowerment, which I think is really, really also important. Uh, we made an announcement recently to start putting monies into black-owned banks so that we can actually uh, encourage you know, wealth creation in those communities. We can uh, help those communities, you know, live their dreams and pursue uh, education and science education, hopefully. So the reason why I'm giving these examples is to illustrate the point that this is a long journey, right? This is not going to happen just this year or next year. we got to yeah. stay the course. This is going to take decades. But what gives me encouragement is that we're talking about this. I really want to thank you, Bob, and uh, Mass Bio for uh, bringing us together. And hopefully uh, we could do more of these and encourage other uh, stakeholders to do the same. Today's episode of State of Possible Podcast with Bob Coughlin is sponsored by Morgan Stanley. The competition for talent has become a serious challenge for the life sciences industry. The ability to hire, 
retain and align great people is imperative to solving the most pressing medical issues. But the competition has become highly complex, with global networks, changing views of careers, and rapidly evolving employee demands. That's where Morgan Stanley at Work can help. Our comprehensive suite of workplace financial solutions is dedicated to helping you better attract, retain, and reward your employees so you can focus on the science. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash at work. We now return to State of Possible Podcast with Bob Coughlin. I have to say I'm sort of sitting here kind of grinning into my phone. I, I think the broad view that Biogen's taking around this challenge and frankly the investments that you're making in our future as as human beings are just inspiring. People always ask me, Kate, you know, Kate, you run a hospital, why do you talk about housing? Because our patients actually can't worry about their health if they don't have a roof over their heads. Mm. And why do you talk about criminal justice reform? Well, you know, there are neighborhoods we serve where one in three families has somebody incarcerated that you can't build a community. And now you want them to talk about a clinical trial? I mean, it's almost like, come on, get, get in line. There's lots of other questions and problems to deal with. So I think with partners like Biogen, with willing leadership, I have to say the staff on this campus, you know, and, and the people that I am privileged to represent really share your commitment and share this this passion to do better good for people. And we know that comes through innovation and it comes through the kinds of brilliance that we've seen. It, you know, I keep coming back to COVID because it's, I have, probably have a little PTSD, but just how quickly, you know, the vaccine trials got started and how quickly all the work mm. got done. That's because that didn't happen because somebody woke up with a good idea. That's years and years of investment that companies have made in understanding biology, human biology, and how to, how to create new medicines. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what companies like Biogen come up with to help our patients get better and stay well. Yeah, it's certainly an exciting time. And, you know, COVID-19 has accelerated the drug discovery process. It's also accelerated the adoption of digital health and digital technologies among healthcare institutions, especially around the delivery of care through telehealth. You know, Kate, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about it. Telehealth was accelerated so rapidly because of COVID-19. What role does technology play in helping to address health inequities? Can we use technology to create better access to clinical trials for all populations? I mean, access to this technology is obviously a huge issue for underserved communities. So let's talk about that a little bit. I think what we saw was, you know, particularly when we had to shut down and had patients who we needed to be in touch with in the early days, telehealth at BMC was a telephone, a patient, and often a translator. You know, we do a million ambulatory visits a year on our campus, so 4,000 a day. And Almost half of them are virtual now, which has been um, a real game wow. changer. It's not a panacea, but the places we've seen the most success is in behavioral health and mental health visits. We had no-show rates that were kind of in the 30%. They're significantly dropped. During the height of COVID, our, our psychiatrists and, and social workers and psychologists and licensed mental health workers were able to see 20% more volume than they would have seen in person during that time. And it was, as you know, greatly needed. And so I think that learning from that and making healthcare accessible to patients, if you want to buy a new pair of shoes, you can do that at two o'clock in the morning. You know, if you work three to 11, why couldn't you do your clinical trial application overnight via technology? I think that that accessibility will help people. We do have to bridge the digital divide, but some of the issues like language are actually enhanced through telehealth. I think that there's an opportunity here when we first started thinking about this, you know, every child in the city of Boston went home with a Chromebook. Mm. What if that Chromebook could also be 
the digital health platform for that family. And it's not perfect because obviously the kids need to do their schoolwork and parents need to do their work work. You know, there should be a way for us to collaborate across sectors to help bridge the digital divide. Oh, that is so helpful. And Cherifi, how about from a Biogen standpoint, where do you see digital health playing in? You know, we're so excited about the capabilities that digital offers. And again, COVID is just accelerating what was already happening. I'll give you an example of a pilot we, uh, we started doing a couple of years ago that is now being accelerated in the area of multiple sclerosis. So we developed a program with the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, this is basically an iPad-based program. You know, those tests basically over time uh, evaluate the patient's cognition, their vision, manual dexterity, you know, walking speed, and all these measures and metrics that are important to evaluate the evolution of disease in multiple sclerosis. And so that data is then communicated to the physician, right? Uh, remotely, and then the physician is able to then interact with the patient and make sound clinical decisions. That pilot was so successful that we're expanding it, we're scaling it, uh, we're making it available to diverse communities uh, in the United States and outside of the U.S. as well. It is one example of the power of digital and, and data analytics, if you want, to really, really provide the best care possible to patients, no matter where they are. They could be in the rural community, they could be in the inner city, uh, and then they may not have access to a physician, uh, certainly not to a specialist, but they can do this. And I think digital is the way to go. You know, years ago, I grew up in, uh, in West Africa. As you know, Bob, we have uh, a deficit in uh, healthcare providers. And this has been going on for 10 years or so. You know, cell phone-based diagnosis is, is so prevalent now across much of Africa. So in some ways, poverty and lack of access kind of accelerated the move to digital in those poor, resource-poor settings, even ahead of the United States. That is the paradox of all of this. I think the U.S. in many ways is going to have to catch up to places like Africa and India, where digital health is, in fact, the mainstay, simply because folks there don't have a choice. You know, yeah. doctor comes to town once, uh, once a week, and so uh, when doctor's not there, you may have a nurse caring for a whole population, and then the nurse will then take a picture on the iPhone send it digitally to a physician who might be in a regional hub, a district hospital, and then the uh, diagnosis is landed in that way. So I think there are many lessons that could be learned. Sure. Uh, and once again, I think we need to do it together. I applaud the work that Kate and her colleagues are doing, BMC and, uh, and Biogen stands ready to really collaborate on this. All right. Thank you so much, folks. And before I close this out, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? First of all, Bob, I want to thank you and MassBio for putting this conference together. I am incredibly energized by this conversation and to understand in a little more detail the very thoughtful and comprehensive mm -hmm. approach a company like Biogen's taking to this is just really inspiring. And I will spread the word on our campus. And if I can ever be helpful connecting you to anyone who could potentially participate in a Biogen trial, please let me know. The second thing I would say is that we have a lot of work to do, and I really want to underscore Turfie's point of this is a decade of development. We're going against, you know, 400 years of history here in our country, and we have a long way to go. But I think our commitment is sort of the fuel to accelerate our desire to diversify clinical trials and really address health disparities in, in our country. And third, the other point Turfie made is there are so many committed young people. And if anyone listening to this podcast, you can be part of this uh, this wonderful innovation in medicine, you know, you can go to medical school and or become a research bench scientist, but we need 
good, organized, smart people mm. to help keep track of clinical data. You know, if you're a numbers person, this is a great career. You know, if you're a nursing student and, and you're thinking, wow, I'm really interested in research, this will be a wonderful careers there. There's also really important jobs and jobs are really an important part of a community's health. So I think there's great opportunity here and we're fortunate in Massachusetts to have so many great companies and opportunities for people to be part of this. Oh, thank you, Kate. And how about you, Cherfi? Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? I really want to repeat in a way what Kate said about uh, young people, right? So, you know, the sector, the biotech sector, the healthcare sector is really important. This is a, uh, a sector that is in uh, crying need for diversity in many ways. So I really encourage all these smart young folks in high school or college to consider joining our sector. Not only is it a fun sector, but it's also a very, very meaningful sector. We're changing the lives of people. So the final thing I'll say is that, you know, we need to also have the mindset of saying that we would be moving beyond curing disease, which we're all been you know, doing, obviously, providers in the industry and so forth. We need to move beyond curing disease to promoting health and promoting equity. And when we say promoting health, that includes human health, but also environment. And so this is really the mindset that, that we have at Biogen. I want to thank uh, Kate and you, Bob, for, uh, for this opportunity. I want to encourage your listeners to really consider uh, joining this, uh, this movement. Folks, in closing, I want to thank my guests, Kate Walsh and Cherfi Jindo, for joining me on today's podcast and providing their perspectives on this complex and evolving issue. When I joined this industry, it was born out of a desire to help my son who has cystic fibrosis and other patients with serious illnesses. I'm not alone in that aspiration, and I feel that our industry is similarly motivated to positively impact all patients. Let's continue to seek answers through clear and candid conversations around health inequities and the care we provide to patients. Although the discussions may be difficult, they are critical to addressing this serious and unmet need in our industry. And in November, we will be discussing the biopharma industry's efforts to develop COVID-19 vaccines at an unprecedented speed and what's needed to ensure the public that these vaccines still uphold the safety and efficacy standards we're known for in the U.S. Please join us then on the State of Possible podcast. Marsh & McLennan Agency is a regional insurance brokerage firm with access to global resources focused on the life science community, representing over 1,000 biotechs across the U.S. We work with life science companies from conception, clinical trials, and product launch to domestic and global expansion, and provide products, service, expertise, and advocacy in the areas of employee benefits, risk management, liability, and more. Visit MarshMMA.com to learn why we are the partner of choice for VC firms, service providers, and life science advocates. That's MarshMMA.com. Thank you for joining us on the State of Possible podcast with Bob Coughlin. A special thanks to Jenny Nason and Zach Stanley of MassBio, as well as podcast co-producer Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media. You can listen to the State of Possible podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and with all Android players. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast using your favorite directory. If you know anyone that should be featured on this podcast, please contact us at communications at massbio.org.